welcome to Discover Pediatric Surgery. My name is Andrew Grieve and I look forward to being your host today on this exciting episode. Today we are joined by Dr. Chris Westcott-Taylor. Chris has set up an amazing colorectal unit at Baraguanath Hospital in Johannesburg and I think beyond his expectations, patients just seem to rock up from everywhere, hearing from word of mouth what's going on and the great service that he's offering. And today we're going to talk about one of Chris's passions. His one passion is anorectal malformations and his other passion is Hirschsprung's disease. So welcome, Chris, and thanks for joining us. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks for inviting me. So, Chris, I want to kick off and just ask you who Harold Hirschsprung is, or was, should I say? So, Andrew, um, the the history of Harold Hirschsprung's is is very interesting, and I think the history of Hirschsprung's is very interesting. Um, but he was a, a Danish pediatrician that was born in eighteen hundred and thirty, and died in nineteen sixteen. Um, he worked at the Queen Louise Children's Hospital in Copenhagen in Denmark. And he had uh, much to do with a lot of pediatric surgery as we do as we know today, even though he was a, a pediatrician. But um, what he's mainly known for is, is his um, describing of, of Hirschsprung's disease. In 1886, um, he described a couple of patients that um, died from Hirschsprung's disease at the Berlin Conference in Germany, um, the Society of Pediatrics. Um, and we know that's the first modern description of, of, of um, Hirschsprung's disease. We know that they were before that, but they didn't quite get them quite correct with autopsies and that. So he's been, um, as we'd say, um, enshrined by having the disease named after him. So, I mean, we're, we're kind of moving away a little bit from eponymous names, but, I mean, Hirschsprung's really has stuck with his disease. I mean, are there any other synonyms for Hirschsprung's disease? So, I mean, um, congenital megacolon is one of them, um, and that's probably what a lot of people use, but it seems that Hirschsprung's disease is really stuck, and that's what, what we most people know it as. All right, so I mean, what, what really is Hirschsprung's disease then? So, um, Hirschsprung's disease is a congenital disease where um, we, we don't find ganglion cells in the myenteric and um, submucosal plexuses. And there's a lot of theories of why they aren't there, but it's, it's a disease that causes a distal obstruction. And it's probably one of the most common causes of distal obstruction in, neon, in a neonate. And we find it in about 1 in 5,000 live births. And it has a 4 to 1 male predominance. But uh, in any child that, that presents with distal obstruction, it's very important to rule out. So, I mean, you say that there's an absence of ganglion cells and that's why they kind of have this pathophysiology or why they have this constipation. But, you know, in some ways I would imagine that if there's no nerve cells, there would be like a weakness or a paralysis. Why is it almost contradictory or the opposite that happens in Hirschsprung's disease? So in Hirschsprung's, the, the bowel can't relax. So it actually causes a, a, a functional obstruction. I mean, there's no mechanical obstruction there, but the bowel just doesn't relax. There's no peristalsis, so the, the, the feces can't go through, so it causes that obstruction. 
and that's that's um, what has caused a lot of problems with the diagnosis and, and the history of, of Hirschsprung's disease is actually diagnosing what the problem was. So it really is a true spastic colon. Absolutely. <laughs> um, Chris, what's the... I mean, you mentioned a little bit about, you know, why this disease has come about. What is some of the pathophysiology behind Hirschsprung's? I mean, do we know what causes it? So we believe that... Um, the primordial neural crest cells, which start at the upper part of the gut, um, migrate along with the, the, the vagal fibers and should reach the, the anal area at about 13 weeks of gestation. Now, there are two theories on why there's aganglionosis at this distal segment. The one is that the, the ganglion cells don't reach there, or the other one is that they reach there, but then they don't uh, mature and they, they disintegrate and die. So in the end of the day, you end up with a, a distal segment of bowel, and it can be very, a varied length of aganglionic bowel, which cannot relax and causes a functional obstruction. Are there any genetic components to this condition? So genetics has, has played a big part in the, in the, in the research of Hirschsprung's disease, and we've known that there's been um, a genetic component because there is a family history in a lot of them, and there is a lot of um, association with some syndromes. Um, you know, there's been a lot of research going on at the moment, and the most common ones that we we seem to find is the the RET gene and the endothelin receptor B gene and the endothelin three gene. But there's a whole lot of research going on with a whole lot more um, genes that are being discovered all the time, and we know that in about 50% of cases we will be able to identify a genetic cause, um, but in the other 50% we really don't know why they the patients have um, Hirschsprung's disease. You mentioned that there are some syndromes associated with Hirschsprung's. What, what syndromes should we be aware of in relation to Hirschsprung's? You know, I mean, the most common one we see is probably Down syndrome. Um, then you get the, um, the neurochristopathies, um, and those are the wardenberg shah syndrome. You get the Yemenite deaf-blind hyperpigmentation, pybilism. Um, there's the MEN, multiple endocrine neoplasm too. And then there's Ondine's curse or congenital central hyperventilation syndrome. Um, and there are many others. There's Moet Wilson syndrome, um, Golden Sprinson um, syndrome. And um, then you can get the isolated congenital abnormalities, which, is, which they say occurs in about 10% of patients as well. And those can be the congenital heart defects, the malrotation, um, urinary tract um, abnormalities, and also some central nervous system abnormalities. But I mean, I think the, the message at the end of the day is that if you've got a child that looks syndromic in any way, or if you know that's got um, Hirsch, I mean, um, trisomy 21, and they have signs of, of um, constipation, they definitely should be worked up for Hirschsprung's disease. Okay. I was going to ask you whether, you know, with all these associations and people say you should look out for Hirschsprung's, in, as you said, in relation to urogenital abnormalities and malrotation. Have you ever seen Hirschsprung's as the secondary presenting feature as opposed to the primary presenting feature? I must say, Andrew, that's, that's quite rare to happen. I personally don't think I've had any you know, child presenting with a malrotation that I've diagnosed with, with Hirschsprung's disease, but I've definitely had patients that I've diagnosed with Hirschsprung's disease and investigated, as you should, and have had malrotation. In fact, I had one last week. Um, and you do pick up urogenital problems when you do an ultrasound of the abdomen. So I think it is important, you know, in patients with 
um, Hirschsprung disease to look for other congenital abnormalities. I must say I haven't gone as far to to try and look out for Hirschsprung disease in a child with malrotation if they haven't presented with Hirschsprung disease. Yeah. But that's maybe something that we can discuss in another day. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, kids with Hirschsprung disease, how do they typically present? So, you know, you know, a lot of in, in this day and age, a lot of people talk about antenatal diagnosis. Um, antenatal diagnosis in Hirschsprung disease is very, very rare. If it is picked up antelatinally as a, as a distal bile obstruction, it's usually the ones that are a total colonic type of, of picture and quite the severe ones. Um, generally, they get picked up in the neonatal period and they present with um, abdominal distension, bilious vomiting, um, feeding intolerance. And if you can get the history, usually they haven't passed meconium in the first 24 hours of life. And that's normally the, the neonatal presentation. You know... They can occasionally present with things like sequel perforation or appendiceal perforation. And on when you're doing your x-ray, they're going to show a classic sign of a distal bowel obstruction. Um, in the younger child, they might also present with um, enterocolitis. Um, and this can be life-threatening. This only occurs in about 10% of patients. But these patients present with fever, abdominal distension, and ironically, they've got diarrhea as well. So sometimes these kids don't get marked as Hirschsprungs because classically they've got a constipation or obstruction sort of picture. But sometimes they can present with, present with diarrhea. And, you know, these are the ones that you've really got to worry about. In the older child, um, which we, we find quite a lot in, in an African setting, um, they've usually had severe chronic constipation and they're dependent on laxatives. They have minimal pseudo, um, you know, pseudo incontinence, so they don't have much overflow incontinence. They definitely have failure to thrive. They've got this massive abdominal extension. And then you might also have the history of delayed passage of meconium. On x-ray, they're going to have a dilated rectal and sigmoid with hard feces and gas trapping. So, you know, it can be a real variation of what they present with. And so I think it's always important to, to have Hirschsprungs at somewhere in the back of your mind as a differential diagnosis of all these patients. And it can be quite difficult to tease out the real chronic constipation from the late presenting um, child with Hirschsprung disease. Um, but I think you've got to look for those red flags. So we often get these kinds of kids presenting to us in the neonatal period. What are some of the other differential diagnoses that we should be aware of in the early neonatal time? These kids who present with delayed passage of meconium, distended abdomens. So, I mean, Hirschsprung's disease is part of a differential diagnosis in the neonatal period. And any of the conditions that can cause distal bile obstruction. So that can start right the way from an anorectal malformation, you know, an, a rectal atresia, which looks like there's a, a nice anus which you've got a probe to differentiate that it's not a, um, you know, it's not a Hirschsprung disease. And then there's all the meconium diseases like the meconium plugs, um, you know, which you can get with cystic fibrosis. And then there's left, I mean, small left colon syndrome in mothers with diabetic um, disease. So, you know, colonic atresias, intestinal atresias, small bile atresias, all things that you've got to keep in your mind when you try and differentiate this child. So are there any clues that you can get from clinical examination? I mean, obviously you've mentioned a lot of the associations that might be there, but are there anything specific to Hirschsprung's that might give us a clue as to the fact that we're dealing with Hirschsprung's disease? So, 
You know, I mean, people always worry about the, you know, the rectal examination. I think that's a very important thing to, to do on any child with a, with a distal bile obstruction is to really inspect the, the anus and, and probe the rectum. Um, you know, it's classically described in a, in a Hirschsprung disease when you, when you probe the rectum, they've got a tight anus, but then they have a massive expulsion of stool and, and, and gas. Um, so, I mean, that's one thing that is, can be quite pathognomic for, for Hirschsprung disease. But if the child is crying, um, the same thing can happen. So it's not a definite diagnosis. And you've got to take the child in the picture. I mean, of course, you've got to look for all the hernia sites and all those sort of things. You've got to see if you can see dilated bile on the abdomen. And, you know, you've got to also take the history in, into account. But, you know, saying that Hirschsprung's is part of a differential diagnosis and you've got to rule out all other things as well. Chris, can I, can I ask you... How do we investigate kids with Hirschsprung disease? I mean, maybe what we should do is break it down into two categories. So there's obviously the kids that present in the neonatal period, and as you said, there's a large differential diagnosis, and then there's the older kids who present with constipation. Maybe you can just walk us through your approach to investigating the kids in those two categories. So, thanks, Andrew. So in, in the, the younger child, which you're suspecting is Hirschsprung disease, and that you're getting from a clinical um, diagnosis, I mean a clinical in investigation. Um, the contrast enema is an important part in trying to, you know, find out if it is Hirschsprung's disease. So, and this contrast enema can be diagnostic and it can be therapeutic because it can rule out things like um, meconium plague syndrome or small left colon syndrome. And the, the, the contrast helps eradicate those plagues. When looking at one for... For Hirschsprung's disease, what we are looking for is a transition zone, um, which we know we don't get in about 10% of neonatal patients. And we also look for subtle signs on the, on, the, on the lateral, see if there's a reverse rectosigmoid ratio. And then, you know, also a, a classic thing is that a lot of these children with Hirschsprung's disease don't evacuate the, the, the contrast afterwards. So if you repeat the, the contrast 24 hours later, you might find that there's a lot of contrast still in the in the um, in the colon. Now we know that this is not a diagnostic thing; it just is an adjunct to the diagnosis. The diagnosis itself is going to come from histological diagnosis, and that we do with um, rectal biopsies. And that we would do in the neonatal period, we would do a suction biopsy, which is at the bedside. You know, it's not an uh, it's not an invasive procedure; it's not very painful on the patient, and that can give us a diagnosis. In the older child. Once again, I think the history is very, very important, and I can can't say enough about you know the Hirschsprung disease. Child has had a long-term history. It's not something that's just occurred in the last couple of months. It's been lifetime, and these children usually have distended abdomens, and we look for the red flags, and that's when the failure to thrive, the distended abdomen, and if they've got the the history of not passing meconium in the first 24 hours of life, then we're going to really investigate them for Hirschsprung's disease. And once again, the investigation at that age is a biopsy, and unfortunately it has to be a full thickness rectal biopsy, which you do in theatre. And I would also do a contrast enema um, to investigate these, these children as well. Okay, so if I'm hearing you right, the two main modalities that we're using at this stage are a contrast enema and a biopsy for histology. I've been reading a little bit about people using manometry uh, in the diagnosis of Hirschsprung's disease. Is this something we should be looking to moving towards, or is it a passing fad, or what's the story with manometry? 
So what you're looking in for manometry is you're looking for an absent recto-anal inhibitory reflex in a child with Hirschsprung's disease. So to, to break that down is that when you blow up a balloon in the rectum of a child with Hirschsprung's disease, the internal sphincter doesn't relax and it actually the pressure actually goes up. Um, and that is one of the adjuncts to diagnose Hirschsprung's disease in, in older children. You do get some false positives and false negatives, so you cannot rely on it to to diagnose. And also in a neonatal child, it's not very accurate and it can't be done. So as I say, I think the gold standard for diagnosis is histological diagnosis. All these other things are adjuncts to the diagnosis. I believe there are some people that use it as a diagnostic tool, but personally I wouldn't advise that. So we do have some problems occasionally with our rectal biopsies and that they're inconclusive, whether that's from a technical aspect of doing a biopsy or whether it's from the pathologist's interpretation of those results, you know, often misleads us. Can I ask you just to walk us through your technique in doing a rectal biopsy? What's the best way to make sure that we don't have these issues with the results and that we can get an accurate diagnosis? So I think before we go on to how we actually do it, I think it's very important to have a pathologist that you work with and does a lot of these, you know, tests. Because, you know, the the pathologist that does this once a year is not going to be the same as a pathologist that does it every single day. And, and we are reliant on the pathologist to make that diagnosis. And it, it can be quite a tricky thing to diagnose. So I think you've got to build a relationship with a pathologist that is interested in the field. Um, what we need to give the pathologist to, to make an accurate diagnosis is a nice bit of tissue from the correct position. And I say the correct position because every child or every adult has got a zone of aganglionosis just proximal to the dentate line. And this is a physiological zone. So we can't be taking biopsies from there because that's going to come back as aganglionotic. Um, so it's got to be about, you know, between 1.5 to 2 centimeters from the dentate line, and that's where we've got to take our tissue. So with the, with the, with the suction biopsies, you know, you get many different types of guns that you use, and it's very important to know what, how your gun works, and that it's in good order. It's got to be lubricated well, what if you're using one that needs suction how much suction you need to use and that you know it all comes with the gun itself but it is important to to get the gun at the right position um so what i do is i usually put my finger on the where i want the the, the depth that the, the gun has got to go in and i put it in i put pressure and i do it posteriorly i try and aim for about one and a half centimeters from the dentate line and I take the biopsy. Now you can usually see if your biopsy is going to be adequate because you get this white sort of sheen on the inferior layer. So you know you've not just got mucosa. And I normally do three biopsies and I do them all in the same sort of area, one and a half to two centimeters, but I go slightly lateral and posteriorly. Now, and that seems to give me fairly good results. Um, in the older child, 
doing a full thickness biopsy, I mean, that needs to be taken to theatre. Um, I usually use a Lone Star retractor. Um, I hide the dentate line, and once again, I go about one and a half to two centimetres from that dentate line. I use a three-stitch technique. Um, I usually use a stay suture, and I put it a deep stay suture, so you catch more than just the mucosa. And then you put two stays on either side of that. I use scissors to take the biopsy. And it is important to notice that in the older children, if you haven't put your stay suture deep enough, you can just pull up mucosa. And when you take that biopsy, it's going to come back as in, inadequate. So it's important to have a, a, a nice deep um biopsy there and then I suture it up I do interrupted sutures with a um, you know a vicral 4 row or so to for for good hemostasis and also I like to give them one dose of prophylactic antibiotics um, prior to the procedure on, on the table and if you follow those basic steps I mean you, you know the majority of times you're going to get a nice sample to the pathologist so what is the pathologist looking for then on histology so there are a couple of things they are looking for. And the one is the gold standard, is to look for ganglion cells. And these are in the um, myenteric and the, the submucosal um, plexus. And if the ganglion cells are there, you cannot diagnose Hirschsprung's disease. What they are also looking for is hypertrophied nerves. And we use a a size of 40 microns, that's not really been proven, but that's a, a size that we say that the, 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 the nerve cells should be bigger than that to diagnose. So, you know, what they should be looking is just doing an H&E stain and looking for the, these two um, things. They can use adjuncts. Um, some pathologists look for acetylcholine esterase um, as an adjunct, and some people will use an uh, immunohistochemical stain like calretinin just to confirm the diagnosis that they are on ganglion cells. So it's usually the two things that you need is absent ganglion cells and hypertrophic nerves that give you the diagnosis of Hirschsprung's disease. Are there any clues in the biopsy that might make you suspect that your biopsy is too low or too close to the dentate line? So, I mean, the, the big clue is if you see anoderm in your, in your <laughs> <laughs> biopsy site, then you really know you're in the wrong place. But if you're getting um, no, ganglion, sir, uh, no ganglion cells and no, no hypertrophic nerves, then that could suggest that you are too low. And I would suggest a repeat biopsy. What are some of the typical segments involved in Hirschsprung's? You said it's always a distal disease, um, and obviously the proximal extent is variable. What, what's the typical sort of extent of the disease that we see in most kids? So the majority of cases, um, in about 80 to 85% of cases, you're going to get rectum or rectosigmoid disease. In about 10% of cases, you're going to get a more proximal disease, and this is usually um, from the um, splenic flexure more proximally. And then also about 5 to 10%, you're going to get a total colonic with a variable amount of ileum involved as well. But by far the majority is the rectosigmoid disease. So we know the treatment of Hirschsprung's disease as traditionally being surgical. Can you walk us through what the goals are of surgery for these patients? So the goal of treating Hirschsprung's disease is to remove the aganglion 
aganglionotic bowel and replace it by ganglionated functional bowel, which you can anastomose to the anus. So, I mean, that is ultimately the goal. There are different ways of doing this. There are different procedures um, to do this. But at the end of the day, if you, if you stick by these principles, you can't go wrong. So it's quite an interesting history behind the progression or the change in surgical techniques for Hirschsprung's disease. Can you give us a, a quick... Uh, a quick tour <laughs> of, of some of the highlights, I mean, some of the interesting things that have changed over time. So, as I said, I mean, this is a, a very interesting read. And, I mean, there are lots of articles giving you the history of Hirschsprung's disease. And I don't think there's been any other disease which has had so much controversy surrounding it with, with regard to diagnosis and management. So, right the way from 1886, when Hirschsprung still gave his, you know, his paper and his talk about Hirschsprung's disease, there's been multiple theories about what the cause and how you manage them. And they range from a malformation theory where the problem was the dilated bowel they thought was the, the, the bowel that was not well or sick. Then there was an obstruction theory where they thought there was mechanical um, obstruction due to um, redundant colon or rectal valves. And then there was the spastic theory where they thought that, you know, the, the colon itself was a f um, in spasm and it would cause the functional ob obstruction. And there's been varying amount of operations to try and um, prevent these. So, you know, for, for the malformation theory where they thought it was a, the, the, the distal, I mean, the, the, the dilated colon, they would just resect the dilated colon and try and anastomose the sick colon again, and that obviously didn't work. With the, the, the obstruction theory of the valves, they would do irrigations, and that actually worked a lot of the time. And with the spastic theory, they would do weird things like parasympathectomies, lumbar sympathectomies, to see if these would work. But, you know, the real first operation that cured Hirschsprung's disease occurred in about, you know, 1946, when uh, Ovar Swenson and his colleagues um, came into the picture. And, and, and he was a very interesting man because he brought a lot of change to Hirschsprung's disease. I mean, he was also the first one to um, say that we should be doing contrast enemas, and he also advocated for rectal biopsies for the diagnosis. So he brought a lot of the stuff which is used today. But he, his first operation was a full-thickness resection of the distal agangliaronic bowel done from the abdomen and doing an anastomosis to the... Um, the, a the anus and his first operation was about three to four centimeters from the um, dentate line and he had quite a bit of entrocolysis this day so he did modify it to about one centimeter from the dentate line the problem with his operation that that if it's not done properly the, and you go too wide you're going to cause damage to um, other structures like the genitourinary system and you know, the nerves which are important for sexual function, for continence of the urinary tract and of the bowel. So a lot of people try to do his operation but had um, failures due to those complications. So, you know, they, other operations were invented. And, you know, the, the main ones we can talk about is, is um, you know, the Duhamel. And the Duhamel procedure, which is a very good procedure, 
relies on the fact that we do no dissection anteriorly, so you're nowhere near the genitourinary system, and you do a rectorectal, I mean retrorectal resection. And anastomo is a piece of ganglionated bowel in a side-to-side manner on a rectal stump. And this is actually a very good operation if done properly. And there's been a lot of modifications with the, the size of the and the length of the, the pouch, but generally that's still used quite commonly. Then Suave, um, who is a French, also developed a, a, a brilliant type of operation where he did a, a mucosal dissection basically and left the muscular cuff. Um, and he also did this from, from the abdomen. And he brought then the normal bowel through this muscular cuff. And he did this to try and prevent the, um, what you call it, the, the dissection anteriorly to stop the problems of damaging the nerves. So there's also with him, there's been quite a few of modifications. And, and to this day, swing, I mean, the Suave operation is probably the most common operation used. But now the cuff is getting smaller and smaller. And, you know, they advocated about a, a five centimeter cuff. And now the majority of people are probably doing about a one to two centimeter meter cuff. After that, um, the next probably big thing that happened was the laparoscopy that occurred. And that's what Georgeson in, um, developed in about 1999. And this was taking away the laparotomy side of things. So it's pretty much the same operation. The good thing about doing it laparoscopically is that you could do a lot of the deep pelvic resection um, laparoscopically, and that prevented the, the surgeons from doing a deep rectal dissection from the, the anal area, which could damage a lot of sphincters. And then around about the same time, um, Dolatore and Langer developed the total um, transanal um, operation, and that's where the whole operation was done from the anus. And, you know, since then, there have been slight modifications. But generally today, I mean, the, the, the main operations still in use are the, the, the Suave, the Swenson, and the Duhamel. And I say they're the, the Suave and Swenson, they're the, they're the Suave or Swenson-like. They're not the original operations where they've gone intra-abdominally, laparotomy-wise. These are usually being done transanally now, so we can't really call them a pure Swenson or a Suave. Are there any um, adjuncts that you use at the time of theatre? I mean, how do you decide you're on the right level to do the anastomosis? Do you guys always have frozen section available in theatre? What's your approach? So the trans-anal approach, people rely on the fact that 85% of the cases are going to be rectosigmoid. And they start off via trans-anally, dissect through that until they find areas and they take frozen section biopsies as they go along. I used to be a proponent of that. I have now changed my mind and now I do a biopsy. I level where the the aganglionic segment stops and I do that via either laparoscopy or I do a periumbilical incision, put a hagar up the anus and just grab the, um, the sigmoid and take biopsies along there. I do that now because I have been burnt in the past by doing a transanal in a in a, a neonate and finding out it was a total colonic and that has really burnt my bridges and made it very difficult to manage the child. So 
Now I do a biopsy for each of them to before I start to determine exactly what the level is. Do you do it at a different sitting or at the same sitting as the transanal surgery? So I do it at the same sitting if I've got frozen section available. You know, if you're sitting in an, in an African or a, a place where you don't have frozen section, I think it is wise to do it in two um, sittings. You go in there, you take the biopsies, suture them up, and I do full thickness biopsies. I think it gives the, the pathologist the most amount of information they can. You suture those back up, and then you can close up, get the formal analysis, and then go back the next week and, and, and do your pull-through. So how do you how do you manage these kids in the interim? I mean, if you either waiting for the biopsy results from doing a rectal biopsy, or if you've done leveling biopsies, I'm going to call it, and you're waiting to do your final surgery, how do you manage these kids in between? Because surely they're all becoming obstructed, and there's a risk of um, getting Hirschsprung's associated enterocolitis. How are you managing these kids? So I think it's very that's a very important question because one of the mainstays of getting patients with Hirschsprungs through any process is the is irrigations and you know the main thing about irrigation is that you're decompressing the bowel and I think it's very important to know the difference between irrigations and bowel washouts or enemas which we'd use in patients with anorectal malformations with irrigations you're putting small aliquots of fluid in normal saline warm normal saline and i usually use about an 18 or 20 french uh, foley's catheter and i instill about 10 to 20 moles of saline um, into the rectum and then i mean then i move the the tube up and down and let it flow out of the the, the catheter and this can be quite a satisfying process because you definitely do see a result and the process, I mean, the, 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 the whole thing is to try and decompress his bowel. There's no point in just putting fluid in because then you're making the child worse off because they, a child with Hirschsprung disease cannot evacuate that fluid so they can still get enterocolitis. You know, and the, the problem is some of these, these irrigations can take up, an hour, up to an hour to work, so you've got to be patient. And if your nursing staff is doing it, they've got to have time to do it, and I think it's very important to teach them how to do it. How do they know that they've put the catheter in far enough? I mean, it, it's, you know, as you say, most of it's probably rectal sigmoid disease, but, I mean, how is there a number you use? or What kind of technique do you use to know that you've got the catheter in far enough? So, I mean, there's no number because, obviously, the, 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 the transition zone is at different areas, but you just get a feel and you'll get a, 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 you'll get a whole lot of gas coming out when you've broken through that area where the obstruction is. And you, you get through that, you'll get evacuation of fluid, you'll get evacuation of stool, you'll get evacuation of, of gas, and then you instill your, your water and you just do it gently, taking the tube up and down until you've got a good result. All right, so you would carry on washing basically until they're clean? Absolutely. Um, there's no set amount of volume. As long as you're getting the majority of fluid out, every time you irrigate, you could do it until they are clean. Okay. I mean, the way you've been describing the new sort of surgical approaches to Hirschsprungs, I mean, they almost sound like they're approaching the same thing, you know, the modified Suaves and the modified Svensons. Um, I mean, obviously, the, the Duhamel is a slightly different um, animal, as it were. What are some of the pros and cons about the different techniques? I mean, you've alluded to damaging the nerves or leaving a, a muscular cuff with the Suave you know, what are you, what are you doing these days, and why did you pick that as opposed to one of the others? So, I mean, what I 
I do is the Swenson-like procedure. And I do that because I feel comfortable in my dissection plane. It might be because I do a lot of Hirschsprung C's, and also it's the same plane that you work in when you're doing anorectal um, problems, when you're doing the PSAP, you're also working in the same, same plane. I also do all my patients prone. I will also do my Hirschsprungs prone um, because I find that a, a more comfortable way to do it. And I'm reproducing the same procedure so you can get good at something. But there's no harm in doing a Hirschsprungs supine in a lithotomy position. So I am somebody that have, is very affay with the, the, the Swenson plane. Um, with regard to... I think it's the cleanest operation because you're getting rid of the most amount of aganglionic bowel. Um, but as I said earlier, if you're not happy in that plane and you're doing the dissection too wide, you are at the risk of damaging the child. So that's why this, the, 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 the Suave was developed. Now, I haven't quite got my head around the Suave with doing a shorter and shorter cuff because... The first Suave, it was a long cuff, and that was to pre prevent the um, damage to the, the genitourinary tract of the nerves. If you're doing a short Suave at one centimeter, you've still got the very high possibility if you're, in the, if you're taking it too thick, you're going to damage the, the nerves. So I haven't quite worked out how in my mind why people are doing short ones. I think you know, an ideal would probably be to do you know, a fairly a three to four centimeter cuff, but then take the total posterior wall out. But I mean, that's just something that I, I'm thinking about. But, you know, there are a lot of people that are very pro suave, um, and it's still probably the most common operation that's done out there, and it's still a very, very good operation. What are some of the complications associated with the suave? So the suave, we, we worry about the suave cuff, and that was done with the, you know, suave originally did the operation um, from the abdomen, he left a long cuff. Um, and the cuff, as we're saying, is the aganglionic uh, muscular cuff. Then people... It's actually part of the, in the bowel wall. It's the, it's the muscle bowel wall. So you've okay. taken the mucosa out and you've left the bowel wall there. Um, and... It's surprising that a lot of people did absolutely well with that long cuff with no problems. But when it does cause problems, it causes an obstruction. So a lot of people then decided to split the cuff. So they did a posterior incision and take and split it so it, so it broke the ring per se. Then, you know, it became short, short enough. People are taking out a lot of the cuff, the posterior part of the cuff, and probably taking out the posterior 180 degrees of the, the cuff. And that's to prevent the... Um, the muscular cuff forming an obstruction so it can sometimes roll down and cause an obstruction at the um, the level of you know pretty much just below the dentate line and I mean that was the one big problem with the, with the suave saying that there are millions of children running around with suaves that have done absolutely brilliantly and I think we just get biased because we see the problem ones mm -hmm. and then Duhamel I mean it's it sounds like it's Perhaps a lot safer um, and technically, you know, more feasible procedure to do. Why has it not really become the most favourable operation? So, I mean, the Dahmel is actually, I mean, conceptually, it's a very good operation. Um, it is done a lot in some centres. The UK is very pro Dahmel, 
And if it's done properly, it's a very good operation. And I just want to emphasize that, you know, all of these operations have pretty much similar results, but there's been no prospective studies showing which one's better and which one's not. So, you know, there's, there's, you, you shouldn't just listen to somebody who says this one's better. You should be doing the operation which you know how to do, which you've been taught to do, and if that's the way, you're probably going to get the best results out of the operation. So, you know, if you have been taught to do this, the, the Suave or the Swenson and you've got good results, you know, that's, that's the way to go. With regard to the Duhamel, um, as you said, it's a much easier operation. Um, it's a retrorectal dissection, so you're not damaging any of the nerves. The problems were that you've still got a lot of a ganglionic bile, which is non-motile. And if you've got a big, what we call a pouch, you can get stasis inside there. Um, you can get a fecaloma, you can get pouchitis, um, and those can cause a whole lot of problems. Now, saying that, if they're done properly, they work very nicely, but I think that's got a lot to do with the, the type of bile that you're putting onto the pouch. If you've got good quality bile that you're putting onto the pouch, you're going to get a good result. It's also important to remember that you've got to take away the entire wall of the anastomosis between the two you can't be left with a spur because that also increases your chances of you know constipation all those sort of problems but you know i um i think the the duhamel is a is a great operation and i think it's it's got more of a place in a in a total colonic type of scene but um a lot of people get very good results with it so what are, what are some of the typical or possible complications post pull through procedure regardless of what technique you use so i mean those can be broken down into you know the the acute setting problems and those usually you know you can get wound infection you can get breakdown of your um of your anastomosis and that is because a lot of the time these operations are being done without a stoma so whichever operation you do for hirschsprungs you've got to do a watertight anastomosis it's it is a a mucosa to mucosa anastomosis. So it's not like an anorectal malformation where you've got a, you know, stoma before it. You've really got to make sure that your anastomosis is good. Um, if you don't have those 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 early problems, then you can usually get the the, the problems which can be broken up into obstructive problems or incontinence problems. And the obstructive um, problems can once again be broken up into, you know, stricture. Which can usually be formed if you've—I mean, formed if you've got a ischemic. If you've brought down some ischemic bile, you get some um, a stricture at your anastomosis site. You can get a twist um, if you don't mark your bile properly when you're doing a pull through, and especially if you're doing a transanal only one, it's very easy to twist the bile. And when you anastomose it, you've done an anastomosis either 180 or 360 degrees in the wrong way, and that can cause an obstruction. Um, you can also leave a very dilated segment of bowel there, which can not um, peristals very well, and that causes a bit of local obstruction as well. You've also worry about what we mentioned before, is the, 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 the suave um, cuff can, can cause a problem there as well. And those are the things that cause obstructive symptoms, and those we can manage. The, the, problem, the big problem with Hirschsprung's is when you deal with the incontinence afterwards, 
And we know that all patients with Hirschsprung disease are born with a normal anal canal. They're born with sphincters, which are actually a little bit too tight. So they should all, in theory, be continent afterwards. If the surgery has not gone to plan and the, the, the surgeon has been a bit misadventureful and has dilated the rectum too much, um, the anus can be damaged, or if they do the dissection and damage the dentate line, they lose sensation. So those are the two iatrogenic problems we can cause um, incontinence. Obviously, there's also incontinence that you can get from um, a fast transit colon or from a slow concert, so you can get um, constipation with overflowing continence. But so you can break down them into obstructive and incontinence problems. How do you typically investigate the kids with constipation problems post pull through? So any child that comes to you post through with Hirschsprung disease, I think it's very important to try and get as much information as you can. You know, unfortunately, when you've got a centre, you get a lot of patients from other centres and you actually don't know what's going on. So I think it's very important to try and speak to the original surgeons, get hold of the notes and actually find out what, you know, what operation has been done. Um, every child with complications deserves an examination under anaesthetic. And when you're doing the examination under anaesthetic, firstly, you're going to look for a stricture. Um, you're going to look to see if the muscles haven't been damaged. This can be done by stimulation. And also you can see before he goes to sleep if he's got a patulous anus. It's not ideal to have a patulous anus when a child's awake. You've got to see where the anastomosis was done. Was it done you know, in the right position? Um, it's quite difficult to see if there's a twist in the bowel at an e-way. Um, and if there are obstructive symptoms, I think it's very important to do another biopsy at that stage. And that biopsy must be done just proximal to the, the old anastomosis um, to make sure that, you know, you haven't got a, a zone of, you know, hypoganglionosis or a transition zone pull-through, um, which you might have to do with, I mean, um, repair with a repeat pull-through. These children also, also deserve a contrast enema, and that gives us a lot of information. And the contrast enema... Um, you know, gives us, firstly, we can use it as a, a poor man's type of manometry. Um, it gives us, it tells us if there's dilated bowel or if there's um, narrow bowel. If there's dilated bowel, we usually, if there's no signs of obstruction, we usually say then we've got a hypoperistaltic bowel. If it's a very thin bowel and, you know, the child's got lots of diarrhea, then we say it's a, a, a very motile sort of um, colon. And we can treat those medically. But um, we also look to see if we can see a cuff. And that you can see on the, you know, when you're looking on the lateral view, you see if there's like a, a filling defect anterior to the sacrum. Um, and, you know, you can also pick up a twist sometimes on a, on a contrast enema. What I did forget to say about on the examination of, you know, when the child is sleeping, you must always look for a cuff. And this you do by putting your finger posteriorly and you run it along the sacrum. And sometimes you can feel a rubbly type of band which is there, which causes the obstruction. And that's something that we also need to take cognizance of. So, Chris, what are some of the treatment options for kids who then present with constipation post a pull through procedure? So, so, you've obviously investigated them and you obviously then can define what the cause is. Do you then manage the cause based on merit, or what are some of your, your options? 
So I think, you know, once you've done EUA, once you've got a chondros enema, you should be able to work out in 99% of the cases what the problem is. If you found there's a stricture that's causing that problem, you might be able to dilate it up or you can do a redo pull through. Um, if there's a twist, obviously you need to redo the pull through and undo the twist. Um, if you've got a ganglionic bowel or hypogangdonic bowel, you have to redo the, the pull through. And sometimes you might have to remove some of the pull through if you've got a very dilated segment beforehand, which means that not enough bowel was taken out in the beginning, and that leads to this hyperperistaltic section. The big problem comes in when you've got damage to the sphincters or damage um, to the, the sensation, as in the anal canal. For those, there's no surgical repair for that, and that you have to rely on bowel management programs, and those are usually an irrigation um, type. So you can either do a, you know, if you've got a very dilated colon above damaged sphincters, then you're going to do a, a high-volume flush, um, and if you've got a very hyperperistatic Taltic barn above, you know, damaged sphincters or, or anal canal, you're going to do a small volume flush. But we must always remember that a child with Hirschsprung's disease is a lot more difficult to manage than an anorectal malformation um, when the sphincters have been damaged or the sensation has been damaged because what we've done with the pull through is that we've brought peristaltic bowel right the way down to the anal canal. In an anorectal malformation, you've still got that you know, the, the, the rectal area, which is an aperistaltic sort of area. So with the Hirschsprung's disease, you've got peristaltic bowel going to an asensate um, colon, I mean, anal canal with no sphincters, you're in a lot of trouble. Um, and then, you know, if you've got children with, with just hypoperistalsis or hyperperistalsis, these can be modified with medication or laxatives, and you can slow the bowel down, you can make it go faster, all those sort of things. But as I said, I mean, with, with those two um, pieces of information, with the EUA and a contrast, you should be able to manage the majority of patients. You alluded to a patient recently that you had that had a total colonic aganglionosis. I mean, what are some of the treatment options for those kinds of kids? So the total colonic aganglionosis is quite an enigma to me. And... You know, they can be quite difficult to diagnose because a lot of them present a bit later than you would expect. Um, they can have a normal-looking contrast enema. And sometimes the irrigations you put them on seem to work. Um, and that is one of the reasons why I always think it's important to do, you know, the biopsies before you, you burn your bridges to do the transhaal dissection. Any child in my management that is a total colonic, I would... Either I would bring out an ileostomy and I'd wait for the child to, to grow a bit. I don't think it's fair on the child to try and do a pull-through right in the neonatal period because the effluent that comes out of an ileostomy or the ileum is very corrosive and they get the most severe nappy rashes. So I wait for the, the, the stool to become a lot more um, viscous, to become more porridge-like, and that's usually at about a year of age. And that's the sort of stage that I'd be thinking about doing an operation. Now, the operations which can be used is you can do the normal um, pull-through, like the Swenson or the Suave pull-through, and do an ileo-anal anastomosis. 
And that works very well in kids because their bowels adapt. You know, in the beginning, they're going to have quite a few stools coming out there. But as time goes on, they, 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 they decrease and they seem to do quite well. You then also get people that do the Ilio de Hummel, and I think that's a very good choice as well because that gives you a little bit of a pouch. Um, and theoretically, you could probably do that in a little bit of a, in a younger child um, because there is the, the, the stools aren't that frequent. Um, but then you've already decided if you've got your staple guns, which are, which are adequate um, or the right size for that child. So those are generally the, the, the two types of operations that are used now. Now... The big problem with a child with a total colonic is that they've got a, a very high chance of getting enterocolitis. And we know that after any operation, even with a short segment um, Hirschsprung's disease, um, there's about a 15% chance of a child getting enterocolitis post-op, um, you know, just because they've got a tight sphincter, which does have a little bit of an obstructive nature. And they usually get to learn how to manage this by about a year of age, a little bit older. They, to, they learn to relax the sphincter, and then the, the, the enterocolitis risk goes. But kids with total clonic, they seem to have a much higher risk of enterocolitis. So any child with a, a total clonic, which I'm dealing with, and I've done the, the pull-through, I usually put them on irrigations after the procedure for at least a year afterwards, and then slowly take them off that. And that seems to decrease the amount of um, episodes of enterocolitis. You know, historically there are lots of other operations um, which are, don't really get used these days to try and maximize the absorptive um, capacity of the bowel by adding patches of large bowel or the Martin procedure, which was like a very long duhamel, but they all ended up with having severe enterocolitis, so those are probably pretty much in the history books now. Thanks, Chris. That's a real whirlwind of a, an introduction to Hirschsprung's disease. Um, do you have any take-home messages you'd like to leave with the guys? So I think it's important to learn from other people's mistakes. So, you know, when it comes to doing a, a Hirschsprung disease, I think it is very important to do the biopsy and level it first. Um, and in that way, you're not going to disadvantage your child. And even if you need to do it in two sittings, I think it's worth it. Because once you've started that transangular approach, um, you have burnt your bridges for, for doing anything else, um, especially if it's in the neonatal period. So just get as much information as you can before you commit to doing any operation. Cool. Thanks, Chris. Appreciate your time and your efforts. And we wish you all the best in your future endeavours and your colorectal units. Go from strength to strength. Thanks, Andrew. It's been a pleasure being here. Thank you for joining us on Discover Pediatric Surgery. Let your friends and colleagues know so we can all learn together.